Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the Rhino Cast Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this week's Rhino Podcast, we speak with none other than guitar wizard Steve Vai about his career and his time with Whitesnake as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of their landmark album, Slip of the Tongue. Hey, Dennis. Hey, Rich. What's going on? I am checking out Rhino.com, as I am wont to do, because I'm looking at a new featured artist here. Of course, you know, I love Led Zeppelin, as most rock and roll fans do. The Led Zeppelin featured artist page on Rhino.com has a release breakdown of all their albums. There's playlists you can tap into there to hear a cool assortment of Led Zeppelin tunes. And there's articles, essays that go into different things about, you know, maybe the recording of Led Zeppelin 2, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Very cool stuff. There's so much to check out on Rhino.com, of course. I love the album of the day because I am constantly needing some new music to listen to. And since I signed up to get the email, I get a new album from Rhino in my inbox every day and it has a short essay that lets me know what I should look for in this album, why I should be listening. And then there's links right there so I can check it out on my favorite streaming platform, whether it's Apple Music, Spotify, and there's other ones. If I missed them or I'm looking for another album to listen to, I can go through and check out more albums of the day from past releases. Pretty cool. Rhino.com. There's so much information there and great releases. I mean, look at all the stuff that came out this fall. It's the Doors Soft Parade 50th Anniversary Deluxe Edition. All kinds of unreleased material on that. The Black Sabbath 9LP Vinyl Collection is out. White Snake Slip of the Tongue Deluxe Edition. And today on the Rhino Podcast, we have none other than guitar empresario Steve Vai. He is a wizard at guitar. And he filled us in on how he got asked to join Whitesnake for the Slip of the Tongue album recording and tour. Really cool stuff. I think fans of Whitesnake and Steve Vai are going to really love this interview because he goes into great detail about how he got where he is today and tells some amazing stories. <laughs> Yeah. 
Steve Vai, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Very nice to be here. Thanks. Start where it all began. What made you want to pick up the guitar? I remember I was, I think, about six years old, and I walked into the auditorium of my school, and there was a kid on the stage, he must have been about nine, and he was playing a guitar. You know, I think at various times in our life, we have moments of clarity, you know, where it's almost like time stands still. And uh, I can remember every detail about that moment. But what really struck me was just seeing this kid playing the guitar. I mean, I was just so moved because I instinctually kind of understood what it was he was doing, you know. And it just looked so cool, you know, the way it's hung <laughs> yeah. down there and you could hit it and bang it and play it. You know? So that's when I became enamored with the instrument. And uh, that's when the love affair started, basically. But I was too, it, it almost seemed like it was... Um, the guitar was like this special sort of sacred thing. And I always kept it sort of, uh, the, the idea of playing it, I kept at a distance in my mind because I don't know, it was just one of these things where I thought maybe it was just too cool for me. You know, I, I wasn't cool enough or something. <laughs> uh, but then my sister came home with Led Zeppelin and that was it. <laughs> I said, that's well, it. Well, that changed it for everybody, didn't it? I yeah, mean. it certainly did, yeah. So... Early on, you took lessons with Joe Satriani. How'd you hook up with yeah. him? Well, interesting story. One of my um, sort of mentors, in a sense, was the boy that lived a few doors down, John Sergio. John uh, had this, uh, he was only a few years older than me, and I was about 12. And he had this vast taste in music that encompassed all these really great progressive rock bands of the 70s. And I was just sitting in my room listening to Led Zeppelin you know, and Alice Cooper, you know, bands like that. And Top 40, I like Top 40, 70s Top 40. But I'd go to John's house and he'd start playing me like Jethro Tull and Queen and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Yes. And that really opened up my, uh, my vision, you know. So he played guitar too. And I remember, because you got to remember now, I was completely enamored with the instrument. And I was just, uh, uh, anytime I'd even see a guitar, I'd be like, uh, uh. even when my mother would get the little Sears catalog, you know, and you open it up and there's that inevitably one page where they've got these cheap guitars and amplifiers. Uh, you know? I, I and, exactly uh, remember that. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure everybody, a lot of people can relate. So when John, when, when I saw that my friend John Sergio had a guitar, I was like, wow, you live two doors away from me? I didn't know there was a guitar that close, you know? <laughs> and he started playing it, and I was stunned because he could actually go like, you know, you know, play like Aqualung. And I just thought, I said to him, you must be the best guitar player in our whole town. And he said, well, if you think I'm good, you should see my teacher, Joe Satriani. <laughs> and... Uh, I secretly got his number. I worked up enough courage to call Joe. And he was, Joe's about four years older than me. And he was always great. And he lived in my town. And I started taking lessons from him and for about three, three or so years. That was it, you know? I mean, my guitar lesson with Joe was everything to me. What a small world. Yeah, I know. How do you? How, and then the fact that we've had such nice careers together and we've traveled the world together at times and we've, we've both had such... Wonderful success, you know? That's really fantastic. You guys go so far back. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. You attended Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Yeah. And one day, I guess you decided you were going to transcribe one of Frank Zappa's songs, the Black Page Note for Note, and you sent it to him. Mm. Tell us about Frank's response and what it was like to hear back from him and what happened after that. 
originally through those years that I was lusting over the guitar but not playing it, my other real interest that actually happened before the guitar was composing. I really? Just un- I, you know, yeah, I, I remember when I was about four years old, I put my finger on a piano and I, I just kind of, at that moment I understood instinctually the, the whole composition process, you know? And I wow. knew that that's what I, I really wanted to do. And when I was in high school, I had this incredible music teacher, um, Bill Westcott, and he taught me everything about composing and about music theory. And I furthered my studies at Berkeley. But I very rarely heard anybody mixing compositional style music with crazy guitar playing and rock. And, and when I heard Frank's music, I, I mean, it was uh, just perfect for me at, at the time. He had this great balance of comedy and and crazy solos and composition. So I just thought, uh, this is this is it. And he had a, just a great sense of humor and everything. So I just right. became enamored with Frank and his music. And then one day I was sitting in my little teenage bedroom practicing and a friend came in and he had a Rolodex. He had stolen this Rolodex from a studio in New York City and it had all these rock stars' personal information. And he goes, oh, and I have Frank Zappa's phone number. And I was like, you what? You know, and I actually started uh, trying to call Frank. I think the first time I was about 16 and his wife answered and she was very nice. I was really surprised. And she said, he's not home. He's on tour. You can call back in six months. So I called back in six months and he was still on, you know. So I called once every six months until finally I was at Berkeley in my friend's apartment because I didn't have a phone. And uh, I called his number and he picked up the phone and we started chatting. And luckily I, I caught him in a good mood. He was looking for some Edgar Varese scores, and I knew where they could be located, at the Boston Public Library. And I Xeroxed them, and I thought that was my in, you know, to try to send him something. And yeah, he accepted a yeah he accepted a a cassette of my band, and I had done a transcription of one of his songs called "The Black Page," which is this incredibly complex, challenging piece of music. I'd sent him all that stuff. When I spoke to him again, he was somewhat impressed with the transcription and the guitar playing, and he sent me a, an actual copy of the Black Page with a request for me to play it as fast as I can. So I made a cassette playing the Black Page part one on the guitar and sent it to him, and next thing I know, he was talking about it in this magazine. It was oh. a stunner because, you know, How I- surreal. I yeah, it was really surreal because I'd never even seen my name in print, except maybe in a high school yearbook. And right. there was the Frank Zappa, you know, going, there's this kid from Berkeley. His name is Steve Vai. He's got a lot of chops. And he said something very interesting. He said, I think he's going to turn into something. I thought my naivete, that Frank was just being nice, kind of trying to be nice to the young college student. But I realized he doesn't do stuff like that. It wasn't until later that I realized he doesn't placate anybody. You know, never, right. never saw it happen once. So he, he must have seen, heard something in the playing. So we started talking on the phone, and uh, he wanted to try me out for the band, but I told him I was 18. Guy said, well, nope, you're too young, sorry. <laughs> but he did employ me to start transcribing tons and tons of stuff, guitar solos and drum parts and scores and lead sheets and all this stuff. 
day after my 20th birthday, I moved to Los Angeles and started hanging out at the house. And next thing you know, I was, I was in the band and we were touring and it was fantastic. I mean, that's just, that just was a dream come true. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after your time with Frank, you released your first solo record, Flexible, on your label, Akashic Records. And the guitar magazine started to publish your work. And this yeah. must have been really gratifying to see your own work receive accolades like that. Well, it, it, it was a surprise, you know, because when I had recorded my first record, Flexible, I mean, it's a very quirky record, very innocent and silly, but I loved it. You know, that's what I was into. I just wanted to like go as over the top as I can with, with silliness or complexity. There's a piece on there called There's Something Dead in Here. <laughs> and it's very, it's, it's like eight <laughs> guitars or so that's, you know, <laughs> I wrote it based on the aroma of the studio after my snake had crawled into the wall and was killing these rats or something. And the place was stinking. So it's like something dead in here. What would that sound like, you know? Right, yeah. There was a piece on there called the Attitude Song that had some pretty serious guitar prototechnics in it. It had some innovative things, and um, I'd sent it to Guitar Player magazine, you know, not expecting so much. And they put that song, they started to do this. It was actually the first one that they had done. They made these little flexi discs. I remember they those. Put it, yeah, put it in the magazine, and this was just, I mean, that was it. That, that started everything. The Frank connection was nice, but it just creates a mystique. You know, you have to deliver something. Right. And Flexible was such a weird record. It was almost like, I don't know if I want people to hear it. But some of the guitar playing on the record, I think, was the thing that got the attention of the guitar magazines. And then right around that time, Crossroads happened. And uh, well, I joined Alcatraz. When you were with Alcatraz, you got a call from John Lydon to play on Public mm -hmm. Image Limited's album. Yeah. Album. Yeah, that was. That How was, did that come about? And what was it like working with Johnny Rotten? That was a great record. The thing I liked about that record, the Pill record, was I didn't have to do anything except show up and just play. Bill Loswell was producing it, and a good friend of mine, Cliff Coltrary, was very good friends with Bill. And Bill was looking for somebody to come in and do these you know, some wild parts, and they decided to give me a call. So I went in. I only had two half days to do all the guitars. And there's a, another guitar player that's on the record, Nicky Scopolitis, who's a great, great player, great guy. He had done some of the rhythms and stuff. So I had, like, full range to do whatever I wanted, anything I wanted, in a very limited period of time. I mean, I did that whole record in two one-half days because I was wow. on tour, and I, I flew in, and, you know, it was Electric Ladyland. 
And I'd put my guitars down, and then that was it. And then the second day, Leiden comes in, and it was just so great. He, he listens to the guitar parts. And now, I didn't know what to expect, because I'm not a punk guitar player, really, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't what they were really going for on this. You know, they were going for something a little different. It's a really great record, if you ever get a chance to hear it. Sort of African rhythmic-influenced, you know? And it's Ginger, ba- Ginger Baker playing drums and... Well, that's a perfect fit. He was so into, you know, he went down to Africa and jammed with Fella and stuff, so. Yeah, and you can hear it. It's just got that very cultural vibe to it. Very cool. So, uh, so Leiden comes in and he listens, and like I said, I didn't know what to expect because the punk world, the, the fans and stuff could be very rigid and snobbish when it comes to someone like myself from a rock and roll world coming into the fold, you know, so to sure. speak. Especially on something as precious as John Lydon, you know? <laughs> right. Lydon just listened to the music and he looks up and he goes, it's fucking great, man. <laughs> I'm like, phew, phew, okay. And, and we had a great time. We went out that night. He's so, he's so much fun. He's so funny, just entertaining because he's just so intense, man, you know? You yeah. walk through Greenwich Village with John Lydon and it's like Jesus Christ is parting the seas. I mean, people are just mad. You know, That's crazy. Insane. Yeah, insane. And he actually asked me to join the band and tour. Oh, and no I, way. I would have, yeah, I would have loved to have done that, but I, I just, a lot of uh, other uh, commitments at the time. Yeah, of course, yeah. Busy yeah. guy. And then at Crossroads was right after that, like you said. What was it like writing parts for both your character, Jack Buckler, who was the devil's guitar player, and Ralph Macchio's character? Because you did write both parts, didn't you? Yeah, well, Ry Cooter did all the slide work. Right. And I, and I did the kind of like the, the playing dual stuff. Uh, well, that was, that was nice, you know. They had, Ry was scoring this film, and he called guitar player, and he said, uh, I need a hotshot guitar player. Who do you got? You know, they played him the, the Attitude song over the phone, and he goes, that's the guy. <laughs> so he called me up and came out to my house, which was a, another stunner, because uh, I was a huge Ry Cooter fan at the time. Yeah. Too. Yeah, it was amazing. And he gave me a copy of the script, and he said, you know, we're trying to create this duel and he was working with some other people, but it wasn't quite working because it was turning more into a jam, you know, and it needed more theater in it. You know, it needed more theatrical dynamics. And, you know, I'm that guy, you know, <laughs> the ham is cooking, you know, right here. Yeah, right. And it was all laid out in the script, you know, it's like uh, at this point, Eugene does this and then Jack Butler does that. And there's, there's one line that said that, you know, Jack Butler ripped out with a riff that sounded like a freight train. You know, it said that in the script. So I said, oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. And I said, hmm, freight train. What is what would Jack Butler sound like playing freight train on the guitar? So that's the gong 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 gong. And that turned into Bad Horsey. Oh, Um, that's so cool. (laughs) 
The director came in, Walter Hill, and he listened to the uh, track. I mean, the first thing he, I remember the first thing he heard was the bad horsey riff. And he goes, how is Eugene even going to come close to that? But it's a real great scene, just the way it builds. And then he asked me if I wanted to be in the film. And, you know, at first I may have even said no, thanks, because I wasn't an actor. And I knew that being a, an effective actor is another artful skill that you got to really focus on. I didn't know sure. what to expect. He goes, well, read the script again, you know, check it out. I, I think you could do it. And I read it and I thought, yeah, I can be that dark character. I had a lot of darkness in me at the time. And uh, Jack Butler was born. I'm sure that raised your public profile tenfold, being in the movie like that. And wow, it was amazing. I couldn't believe it. I mean, that you can be on a hit record. You could sell millions of records and tour the world, but one hit movie. That's when I started to understand the challenges that a, a very famous person could have. I mean, I was just had this little part in a film, you know? And yeah. I was being recognized all over the place. Wow. You know, and just out in the street. For years, people knew me as Jack Butler, as opposed to, <laughs> you know, hey, there goes the guitarist for Dave Roth. You know, it was more like, yeah, right. there's Jack Butler. And um, that kind of, you know, exposure in a film was just a, a big surprise. I can't imagine how, like, very famous people can deal with that kind of fame, you know, where every place they go. It's, I've hung around with some of those people, and uh, that's a challenge, really. Well, speaking of Diamond Dave that you just mentioned, how did you get the call to join the David Lee Roth band? Billy Sheehan was working with Dave. Dave had left Van Halen and he was starting a solo band. And Billy Sheehan said there's, it was, again, the Attitude song in Guitar Player. That, that, wow. There's no way to quantify what that song had, how it opened up all these doors. It was a shocker. That's Everything crazy. sprung from that. Everything but Frank, yeah. I guess, you know, just sprung from that. So I, I, I got a call from Dave. And now, if you can imagine in the 80s, that position was probably the most coveted guitar position in the world. I mean, anybody, anybody that had that gig was immediately going to be, you know, have all the, the eyes on them. And a very odd thing happened when I was, I was in my little apartment on Fairfax Street in Hollywood. And my friend said, did you hear David Lee Roth is looking for a guitar player? And right at that instant, something said to me, that's your gig. You're, oh, you're, doing, that, you're, you're doing that gig. It's not like, oh, I really want that gig, you know, which I did. Something just said, this is your gig. Well, you're the perfect person to step into those shoes because anybody that Dave had to hire had to be a heavy hitter on the guitar for obvious reasons. Yeah. Well, like I said, I had a, a real, my roots in rock and I loved rock and I, I loved the energy of, of bands like Van Halen and I loved Edward. I mean, he was a game changer. Come on. You know, oh yes, no, absolutely. No messing no around. I can't mess around with this. Yeah. I mean, he was, he's the guy. And when I tried to conceive of what it would be like to be the guitar behind the voice that was, you know, everybody was used to hearing Edward. You know, I just realized I, I'm not competing. I, I, when I joined Alcatraz, I, there was no way I was going to try to compete with Ingve or compete with Edward Van Halen. You just don't do right. that. You're you just have to be yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, they want me. They're going to get me because that's the only thing I know how to do with any kind of authenticity. It's the only thing that anybody knows how to do with authenticity is to be 
themselves if they can find themselves. Right. Um, so it was a great project. I mean, are you kidding? It was just right. fantastic to be able to enter that arena. And then you know, it's like being famous overnight, you know? When the Roth thing hit, the, the, the Crossroads thing came out. So, you know, there's this momentum that just kind of kicked <laughs> you in. Were, yeah. yeah, you were on the crest of a wave for sure. Yeah, it, it was a just... You recorded and I, toured for two album cycles with Roth through the double mm -hmm. platinum Edelman Smile and Skyscraper. Both were top 10 records. Yeah. And at the same time, weren't you also designing your signature gem guitar for Ibanez? Yes. Uh, that that kind of started from, you know, when I was a kid where I loved Les Pauls because of their sound, but they didn't have whammy bars. And then when, right. uh, you know, guitars started to merge together, I had a handful of guitars made that kind of fit my idiosyncrasies. When I joined Dave Roth, I ended up uh, signing with Ibanez, and they started making this guitar, and that became the gem and the, the RG and, and then the seven string. You know, we talk about crossroads and flexible and all these things, which are fantastic and economically powerful, but that Ibanez deal and the success of the gem, it dwarfs the economics of anything else I've ever done. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I mean, just the yeah, thing that funny. you don't, you're not focused on, right? You're not thinking about it. And I wasn't it becomes... thinking about it. Right. That's the, f you, you, you hit the nail on the head, brother. It was yeah. something, when I designed the gem, it was purely innocent and exciting because- You were solving a problem gonna, in your mind. I was solving a tone. problem in my mind for me. Yeah. And right. I mean, I didn't expect anybody else would even know about the guitar or anything, you know? Right. But um, it was innocent. And anything, I got I to gotta tell you, anything I've ever done in the music business that came naturally with enthusiasm, where I don't feel like I worked, yeah. it's just worked. It worked <laughs> incredibly well. That's and everything awesome. that I've, I, like where I had an agenda in the back of my mind, oh, this is going to be really big. And oh, this is going to solidify me as the dun, 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 you know yeah failed every time every time wow <laughs> after your run with dlr how did you hook up with whitesnake what led to that we're here obviously mm. talking about the 30th anniversary of slip of the tongue yeah um, how'd you get the call from david whitesnake had had that huge record in the 80s and everybody loved that record i love that record that's when i first really uh, heard david's voice I love great rock lead singers, you know? I just love that sound. And when I heard that record, I was like, ah, oh, this guy, he's really great. And the songs are great. And the guitar sound on that record, uh, you know, John Sykes, was, it was just really fat. There was a sound to it unlike anything else, but the songs were great. They, they just, it arrived at the perfect time. So that record blew up and the band blew up and they were one of the very few bands, I have to say, and, and no, no disrespect to the other bands of the 80s at that time that were kind of, uh, I hate using this term, B-level. If you're selling 4 million records compared to somebody that's selling 20, it could be considered A, but it's more of like a B. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's really crazy back then when records used to sell. But the thing that was so great about Whitesnake was there was this mystique and this integrity in the music. And they had the look, you know, that 80s look, you know, it was sexy rock and roll guys. So yeah. I really liked the band. And I wanted to release a solo record, and that was Passion and Warfare, because I was kind of recording that through the Roth years on and off, but uh, I could never release it because of my commitment with Dave. And after I had finished Passion and Warfare, after I left Dave's band, that was coming out. 
And I actually had an option of either touring on Passion and Warfare or touring with Whitesnake. Because, well, what happened was, I, I guess David had heard that I, you know, left Roth. And um, he called me. And it was another surprise, especially to hear that beautiful, rich speaking voice over the phone, which oh, yeah. many of you are aware of. It's like it pours like fine bourbon or something, you know? And it's, <laughs> I was like, you know you're American when you're speaking to David. <laughs> right. He's proper. He's so cool. But fun and, and uh, loose at the same time, yeah. Oh, he's so funny. Yeah, so when the, when the offer came in, at first I thought, well, it was kind of a relief, and I'll tell you why. I didn't have enough material on Passion and Warfare to do a, a whole kind of two-hour show, and I didn't know how I was going to front a band just playing instrumental music. You know, I liked the idea, but I was coming more from a place where I was the side man, like with Dave Roth, and I loved that. So the White Snake thing came right on time, and it couldn't have been, for me, a better kind of a choice because they were a band that had rock and roll integrity, they had a really great lead singer. And um, the record was basically recorded. Unfortunately, Adrian Vandenberg, he was able to get the rhythm guitars down, the guide guitars, so to speak. Right. But he had had this affliction with his hand. He couldn't play certain things he just couldn't do. So he couldn't really do the record the way it needed to get done. So in a weird way, the, the cards fell in place for me because then I was the only guitar player on the record. I mean, there's a lot of great guitar players I think could have fit that bill. And I think in some ways he may have been taking a risk by asking me because Whitesnake's foundation is very much in that very traditional European rock blues. Then you introduce someone like myself who is just so American. You know, you don't realize, I didn't realize, because when you're growing up in a particular country or territory, you don't realize how the culture influences you because you think, well, this is just the way I am. This is the way everybody is, you know? And then you start going out into the world, meeting different people, seeing different places, different traditions, different cultures, and you realize, yeah, I'm American. Yeah, very, well, nobody very hears funny. their own accent, you know? Nobody hears their own accent and understands the idiosyncrasies, you know? So any culture that you grow up in, it will kind of find its way into anything you do creatively. It has to. Right. Because anything you, anything you do creatively is just a reflection of your makeup. I think it was interesting to pick me to be in Whitesnake, being that I'm so American. I couldn't see the advantage of trying to change myself because that just never works. You know, Well, it it's just back to what work. you were saying earlier about being yeah. yourself and you being yourself is what has given you all the opportunities that you've gotten. Yeah. David was, you know, he seemed very happy with the parts and what I was doing. And I was layering things and there's so many guitar parts on that white snake record i mean we worked hard really hard on that and it's not conventional traditional european rock blues guitar playing so i gotta hand it to david for having the courage to hire someone like me but i think it worked out really great i, I love the record Something very interesting about that record is that's when I got the first seven string guitar. 
with Ibanez, I had the gem. And then I asked them to make a, a gem with a seventh string. Little did I know the subculture that it was going to create, you know? That's so crazy. Yeah, it was you crazy. You were far ahead of the curve there on that one. That was another one of those just simply innocent things where I, I didn't set out to, you know, I wasn't sitting going, this is going to change the world. You know, this, I'm going to make a lot of money. This is going to be great. I just thought, wow, it'd be really cool to have a seventh string, you know, tune it down, you know? And they said, okay. I mean, the conversation lasted like a minute and they made me this guitar and I got it and I took the first prototype and I recorded the whole White Snake. So that record, if you listen, that's the first rock record that has a seven string guitar throughout the whole thing. A little bit of trivia for oh, you. Oh, that's so awesome. That White Snake record, Slip of the Tongue, is the first rock record to utilize the seven string. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. But then later on, obviously, I knew that there was going to be these new young players that were going to come along and really make a make a difference with that guitar. And they did. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, let's do a little bit of track by track on some of these songs from mm -hmm. the album. Let's just go down the singles. Let's start with Judgment Day. What What are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that one, either recording or, or playing that one live? Well, Judgment Day, I thought was pretty cool because it almost had a progressive feel to it in that it had all these different dimensions and layers. I was a little concerned in that it was a little uh, cashmere-ish, you know? Okay. But then, but then again, what, you know, we all know that a lot of times the press was making these comparisons between Whitesnake and Led Zeppelin. Of course. Because For they, obvious did that with a lot of, they did that with a lot of bands, but also obvious reasons. So I was always like, we can't do anything that is remotely like Led Zeppelin, you know, which is stupid because nobody can escape the influence of Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And uh, so that was just a little, uh, I remember recording it thinking, um, how can I contribute the guitar parts to this to kind of give it a little bit of a non-conventional approach? And the seven string can really be heard on that beautifully. You're loving that was the biggest song off of this record, but it was also the second time that White Snake had released it. And the previous version, of course, appears on 1980s Ready and Willing. Yeah, why did do you why did those guys decide to recut it? David would be able to answer that, but yeah, from my recollection, I believe, but you need to verify this that it was a suggestion from John Kalodner, who was our AR guy at the time, because he loved the song and he thought it was a great song. And and I remember when I heard it, and you know, no disrespect, obviously, and they'll all tell you this. Uh, I didn't like it. I thought this is—it's too simple. It's too—I don't know. You know, it was what, what like one of the songs that I just thought I don't know. I don't really—I'm not really crazy about this. But then I—I I started listening to it, and I thought, oh, okay, I know. I'm gonna—I'm gonna really spruce it up with all these layered guitars and, and all these things. So I did that. I went into the studio. I spent a lot of time, and it's like 30 guitar tracks. Wow. And Kalodner heard it, and he said, eh. He didn't use the word noodly, but something like that. Right. Because it's too, too noodly, or something like that. And he said, you, you, he asked me to record it just normal. And I said, no, nah, I can't. I, it was funny. <laughs> he goes, you just need to play the rock guitar part. And I said, I can't. It's too conventional. It's not me. I'd be embarrassed. You know, I, I, it's, I don't care. I'm not doing it. It just 
it's not me. Right. That's how snobbish I was back then. He talked me into it. He said, well, why don't you do it and maybe we'll make it a B-side? And I said, okay. And I did it. And I, I liked the way it came out. It, it, I was just being a, I mean, I was not such an easy guy back then. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I really was a bit of a prima donna and a prick. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm sure they'll all be able to tell you that, you know, and I, I know that. And, you know, I've apologized many times to all of them. But <laughs> um, with that song, it, it, I ended up doing it. I ended up liking it. They ended up making it a single. But they did release the other version that I did as, a, I think it was a B-side, and they called it the Vi Voltage Mix. <laughs> oh, man. I just listened <laughs> yeah. to that this morning. And it kills. Oh, yeah. I love it. It's I, I prefer nice. it to the one that went to number two, you know, but it's wow. it's got so many great parts. There's a little more at the so intro. So far, it's me and you. really hear all the different layers that you put on it like you said i mean really you'd like yeah. you have 30 tracks on that one on vi voltage mix something like that i think what happened was when you listen to that version it's not it's hardly even the same song you know it's like they sound it, totally different yeah very different and i think you know kolodner was uh he wasn't ready for it to be that different right he was looking yeah. for his straight up radio hit i think yeah the deeper the love it was another top five hit yeah. this one went to number four yeah, I used to love playing that one live, too. I remember <laughs> a funny story about that one. I was doing the solo in the studio, and the way we, we, we would recording was David and Keith Olsen were in another studio across town, and myself and Mike Klink were at my studio in Hollywood doing all the guitars. But that song came up, and I had to put a solo on, and I wanted to experiment with some different gear, so I had this, I forget what it was, um, well... Oh, I remember, but I don't want to mention it. <laughs> because I recorded, I worked very hard. I recorded this solo and it just, it didn't sound good. You know, it was, it sounded sort of like a deranged mosquito or something, you know, the tone. Because it was one right. of these new things that came out that everybody's like, oh, you put that sound on a track with Tommy Aldridge, you know, it goes away, you know. So, but yeah. I did the solo and that was the only comment, the only time I believe David ever commented about anything I played on the record where he said, uh, can you do that solo again? Yeah, because it, it just didn't sound good. And I said, yeah, I know it, it's, it sucks. So I took the piece of gear and I put a piece of tape over it and I called it stupid fucking piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> then I broke out my Marshalls and recorded a proper solo. There's one song on there that I really got a kick out of recording, and I think it's got some of my funnest tricks in it, and it's Kitten's Got Claws. That guitar track 
it's very Vi in that it's it's so quirky, you know? Like the beginning, when you hear that beginning, that's all guitars. Those cats meowing and her, you know, those are that's all guitar. <laughs> and I listened to that not too long ago and I was just thinking, how did I do that? How could it be so cool? They sound like cats, you know, and they're guitars. <laughs> funny following the vocal there's like there's this one line that goes uh with her g-string tuned to a so <laughs> tune my g-string to a right when he says it it had all those elements of being a rock song with the attitude and the groove and the right vocals i just heard it in my head and i said okay this is my meat you know, this, this this is my thing. I knew exactly what I was going to do. It didn't matter what anybody ever played before. You know, whoever was in the band or if I was coming from the ghost of Eddie Van Halen or Ingve or Crossroads or any of these things, none of that mattered, you know, because for right. a song like that, I was like, just let me add it. Just let me add it. You know, I just <laughs> sharpen my knives, man. You know, I, that kind yeah. of thing was the most exciting thing to me. That could be, you know, hearing a track like that and going, this is an open palette, do whatever you want, care for what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, right. I know, exactly. <laughs> well, the Slip of the Tongue tour went from yeah. February through September of 1990. You guys played so many dates. Um, yeah. I know you say that you can go out and you can play 25 dates in a row. Must have been yeah. kind of tough on David to be able to sing all of those all that time, but I bet you guys just had the best time on this tour? Well, it, it was it was absolutely nice. You know, like I say, I was kind of a different person back then. I had just come from Dave Roth, which was like a boot camp, you know? Right. I'd learned how to navigate through the rock star mentality, and I acquired a lot of it. When I was with Dave Roth, I was under very rigid constraints. He didn't let my ego get out of control at all. <laughs> Wasn't enough room. <laughs> <laughs> but when I when I joined Whitesnake, every it was a shock, but a bit of a surprise because everybody was so respectful and and so easy and so accommodating. It was the top of the '80s. I was at the top of the heap, so to speak. Just sold millions of records with Dave. Crossroads had hit. Passion and Warfare had come out. It was a smash, you know. Yeah. So the innocent boy that you know was in his teenage Long Island bedroom practicing was starting to turn into a monster in a sense, you know. Right. Um, just, just the attitude. But the, all the guys in Whitesnake were very grounded. And I was just kind of like this, um, probably a little more demanding, a little more difficult. But they were very tolerant. And, and it was a good tour. It was really good. I mean, there was never any fights or anything like that. Right. Uh, right. And David was always a gentleman. All the guys, they were funny. They had great sense of humor. I got to say, man, David Coverdale got on that stage every night. You were talking about, you know, what it must be like for a guy like that to have to tour that much. That's what he's built for. And right. David got on that stage every night and he never made any excuses and he just nailed it. It was stunning. I mean, he, that guy can sing. It must have been inspiring. It must have driven you to want to play better. Absolutely. You know, I loved watching him sing and just hearing him sing. I still do. You know, it lights wow. me up. He nailed it every night and he never made excuses and he never phoned it in slip of the tongue 
you know, that record for me stands up 30 years later. I, if I listen to it, I listened to it probably about a year ago, making the videos and doing that tour. I mean, we headlined all the biggest tours. We did Donington. We headlined Monsters of Rock. So take me We had people like Kiss and Aerosmith opening for us. It's like, whoa. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm very happy to see that David, when he got to Slip of the Tongue, he had already developed an incredible catalog of, you know, really great rock music. And Slip of the Tongue is 30 years old, and he hasn't stopped. He's been continuing to tour and make music and you know the white snake itself will continually change but he's the guy and i love seeing that you know he's he's completely committed to his craft he has all the goods and uh that little incarnation of the band i was just very happy to be a part of it it was like a little uh, life gift thank you for your remarkable hospitality Donington. i to thank god for such a wonderful day the Magnificent Thunder, Choir Boys, Poison, Aerosmith, and your good selves. Well, I don't know about you, but I had my headphones up way too loud for your conversation with Steve Vai. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Steve was generous to give us all those great details about his career thus far and shine some light on the recording of Slip of the Tongue. Anybody who's a Whitesnake fan or a Steve Vai fan is really going to love this deluxe edition of Slip of the Tongue because there are so many different versions of the songs, alternate mixes, and of course... From the Slip of the Tongue tour, there is the performance from Castle Donington. So check it out. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved. <laughs>